0: KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening where we are set to continue our exploration into the book of Genesis. We are in chapter 44, a chapter that will have us talking about Joseph detaining Benjamin and arguably one of the most emotional appeals in all of sacred scripture, in Judah pleading for Benjamin's release before Joseph so gripping is this emotional pill that, as we will discuss in future programs, this is what leads to Joseph revealing his, his identity as Joseph, okay? It, it's, it's just not because he was pulling on his heartstrings. There's something much more deeper going on, but it would be enough to say that what we are going to get into this evening and next week is the stuff of just rich, rich subject matter, okay? So, Again, this is what we are set out to do this evening. Uh, If you have any questions, comments, thoughts, uh, observations about what we are talking about specific to the book of Genesis, do not hesitate to send me an email at jholljmj at yahoo.com or you can, as always, go to my website at joeholcraft.org. Just hit the contact link button there and send your question, message, observation on its way and I will gladly respond to you. Okay. If you want to pull out your Bibles, turn them to chapter 44 if you haven't done so already. So before we read these opening verses, we should say something about what is going on here. Well, in at least the first 13 verses, Joseph stages a final test to really ascertain his brother's love for Benjamin, as well as their loyalty to Jacob, right? It just wasn't about Benjamin, but also Jacob. And so what he does is he he plants his silver cup in Benjamin's grain sack. And ultimately, in doing so, he succeeds in bringing both of these relational issues into the spotlight, what they think about Benjamin and also uh, what they think about their father. Okay, so chapter 44, verse 1. Then he commanded the steward of his house, "'Fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry.'" and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. When they had gone but a short distance from the city, Joseph said to his steward, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you returned evil for good? Why have you stolen my silver cup? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he divines? You have done wrong in so doing. Okay, so (laughs) let's hit the pause button there. Here, no more had they gotten out of sight than Joseph ordered his steward to pursue them, charging them with this theft. And bringing back Benjamin in whose sack the silver cup was sure to be found, right? So now, a serious difficulty, I think, for many readers of this text arises with this silver cup that is hidden in Benjamin's sack. Why? Because the servant described it as the cup which his master used for divinization. What have we already said and talked about as it relates to divinization? Shoot verse 15, Joseph claims to have knowledge through divinization. So the difficulty lies in the fact that, uh, well, God forbids such means of acquiring knowledge, right? What do we read in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 26? You shall not eat anything with the blood, nor practice divinization or soothsaying. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 10, there shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divinization, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer. So my friends, the question begs to be asked, how could one as spiritual as Joseph be guilty of using a method of gaining knowledge that was an abomination to God? Well my friends, let us read this in context, right? Recall what we said about Joseph in chapters 40 and 41. Joseph receives his instruction from God and God alone, the one true God. I really believe this is no more than Joseph continuing to disguise himself as an Egyptian vizier. Joseph only has godly motivations, Joseph only has holy motivations. He is not motivated by anything the world has to offer, in spite of being the number two man in Egypt. No, if he was concerned about what the world had to offer, this would be a much different narrative if we interpret this passage under the hermeneutic of suspicion, then you might come to the conclusion that, yeah, Joseph was a sorcerer. All of this narrative says otherwise. And point of fact, when you read this in context, I think the answer is pretty straightforward. Joseph needed to remain under the disguise of one who was an Egyptian vizier, an Egyptian prime minister. Otherwise, his whole grand plan would be shot, okay? All right, so at this point, Joseph's faithful steward now sets out to accomplish what his master, Joseph, commanded. Joseph's brothers had been lulled into a false sense of confidence, if you will. Let's read verses 6 to 13. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants that they should do such a thing. Behold, the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then should we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it be found, let him die, and we will also be my Lord's slaves. He said, Let it be as you say. He with whom it is found shall be my slave." and the rest of you shall be blameless. Then every man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and every man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. Moving, then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. So, overtaking these Hebrew men as they headed back to their father, the steward accused them of stealing this silver divining cup, right? And with a sense of self-confidence and maybe self-righteousness, <laughs> the brothers assured the steward that it couldn't have been them. After all, had they not attempted to return the money which they found in their sacks from the first journey, right? We we talked about that. So assured of their confidence or maybe better said assured of their innocence, they probably overcompensated by pronouncing their own sentence if found guilty. Let the thief, if indeed there was one, be put to death and let all the rest become slaves. Wow. I mean, they were willing to risk it all because they were certain of their innocence. I, I for one, appreciate such confidence. (laughs) And also take note of what the steward does here knowing that he would discover the cup and probably knowing the intent of his master in this situation to test them in the matter of family cohesiveness and loyalty, the steward wisely and graciously modifies their self-imposed sentence. No, he says, let the one whose sack the cup is found become Joseph's slave and the rest of you can go free. Gosh, how a growing sense of dread must have overcome these brothers, as each learned that his money had found its way back to a sack. I think the basis for the righteous indignation had disappeared. But you see, my friends, the steward makes no mention of their money. All he wished to discover was the thief of the cup. So from the oldest to the youngest, the steward made his way down the line until, of course, he reached Benjamin the last, and their world came crashing in upon them as this cup was discovered. How do we know that? Well, what do we read in verse 13 again? Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. They tore their clothes. This is a sign of extreme distress. We've already talked about this. We've already seen this in in chapter 37, verses 29 and 34. And here, my friends, I think we could say, was the first phase of the final test of Joseph's brothers. While they had initially insisted that the thief die and the others remain as slaves, the stewards set the penalty as slavery only for the culprit. The others could be on their way. And yet, all of the brothers tear their clothes again as a sign of grief, as a sign of mourning, as a sign of distress and all of them went away to be free? Yay! We weren't found guilty. No. They all returned to Joseph's house. Something is going on, huh? I mean, had they acted only in self-interest, they would have renounced Benjamin as a thief. They would have deserted him, fled from Egypt as quickly as possible, but something different was taking place. These were not the same men that had determined to do away with Joseph at Dothan all the way back in Genesis 37. I find it fascinating, my friends, that more than 20 years had passed since they had sold Joseph into slavery. And yet, it was as though they were reliving the event in the person of Benjamin, right? I mean, consider it. Juxtapose this, if you will. Before, they had resented the fact that Joseph had observed their misconduct and reported it to Jacob when far from the watchful eye of their father, they found an occasion to get rid of Joseph. First, they decided to kill violently, then to starve him to death in a pit, and finally to sell him into slavery for silver. We talked about all of this in chapter 37. Now, now, they were faced with a most similar situation. Benjamin, Jacob's beloved was in their care, far from Jacob's protection. He was accused of a terrible crime for which there was no opportunity to establish his innocence. They, without any real guilt, such as they deserved before, huh, could merely choose to walk away and enjoy their freedom at Benjamin's expense. They could return to their father just as they had done so long ago, 20 years ago and break their father's heart with the news that his other son was quote-unquote no more 20 years later the same temptation faces these men will they evidence a change of heart i mean if we didn't know this story if we didn't learn this story in first second third grade how might we read this differently with great suspense huh Will they evidence a change of heart, or or will they act in self-interest? We might be reading this story, cheering them on, make the right decision, choose the right path. These questions before them are the questions that Joseph must know. For you see, the moment of truth has arrived. I mean, the self-confidence of only a few previous verses, in verses 7 and 9, I think, has now completely eroded away by the discovery of the cup, the cup in Benjamin's sack. There is now no attempt at making a defense or giving any explanation. Instead, there is an admission of guilt, not just on Benjamin's part, but on the part of all of them. We read in verses 14 to 17, when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house he was still there and they fell before him to the ground joseph said to them what deed is this that you have done do you not know that such a man as i can indeed divine and judah said what shall we say to my lord what shall we speak or how can we clear ourselves god has found out the guilt of your servants behold we are my lord's slaves both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my slave. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. he's, He's giving them an opportunity, right? On their first visit, the brothers were impressed with Joseph. But only as a man to be feared, maybe for secular reasons. On this second mission, they had also gained an appreciation for his generosity and kind intent i mean the the new meal and the generous provisions and accommodations were not intended to disarm these men but to assure them to assure them of the kindness of joseph right so they come into contact with i think the goodness and certainly to some degree also the firmness of joseph i believe part of the reason they returned and master joseph was that they had gained an appreciation for his integrity and that ultimately i think in the end they could trust him with their hearts he was one to whom they could appeal right so joseph is still at home as the heartbroken party returns they fall prostrate before him there it is again falling before joseph again no longer though seeking justice as before, but now mercy. So Judah seeks to convey their brokenness. They are without any defense. He does not acknowledge guilt in the matter of the cup, nor does he seek to give an explanation. He confesses that they now see the origin of this disaster. It is God against whom they have sinned. It is not for the theft of Joseph's cup that they are now in trouble, but for their sins of the past. This is what I continue to find so striking. I think we touched upon this yesterday. Speaking to this guilt, the guilt of disowning Joseph and deceiving Jacob, this now has come to pass. So as all were guilty of that sin, except Benjamin, right? so they are all guilty before the governor of egypt they will suffer together since they shared in common that act of sin that sin we spoke of in chapter 37 but joseph would not hear this and this is really interesting for me when i read this again (laughs) i mean why should all suffer for the sin of one joseph poses as a mere egyptian he could not know of their past sins He was only intent upon making matters right in regard to the theft of his silver cup. No, all would be sent home to their father except Benjamin. And he would remain as Joseph's slave. You see, he needed to continue to play this out so as to fully disclose where their heart is at. And so it is. Here we have one of the more riveting emotional appeals in all of sacred scripture, I would argue, in judah's plea as he once again steps forward by the way as the spiritual leader of this family we read in verse 18 then judah went up to him and said oh my lord let your servant i beg you speak a word in my lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant for you are like pharaoh himself wow <laughs> my lord asked his servants saying, have you a father or a brother? And we said to my lord, we have a father, an old man and a young brother, the child of his old age and his brother is dead and he alone is left of his mother's children and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may, that I may set my eyes upon him. We said to my lord, the lad cannot leave his father for if he should leave his father his father would die then you said to your servants unless your youngest brother comes down with you you shall see my face no more when we went back to your servant my father we told him the words of my lord and when our father said go again buy us a little food we said we cannot go down if our youngest brother goes with us then we will go down But we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm befalls him, you will bring down my gray hairs and sorrow to Sheol. Now, therefore... When I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, then as his life is bound up and the lad's life, when he sees that the lad is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame in the sight of my father all my life now therefore let your servant i beg you remain instead of the lad as a slave to my lord and let the lad go back with his brothers for how can i go back to my father if the lad is not with me i fear to see the evil that would come upon my father all right (laughs) so with a humble petition for forbearance Judah beseeches his brother to give him the opportunity to tell the whole story from beginning to end. And as he does, Judah steps forward to deliver this emotional appeal. He is pleading for mercy, not just for Benjamin and the brothers generally, but for the elderly Jacob who is sure to die in grief if his youngest son does not return to him. Judah is even willing to substitute himself for Benjamin and accept the shackles of slavery to avoid this. We all know what happens after these series of verses. Joseph will identify himself as the brother, and the entire situation is suddenly reversed. But that is the subject for next week, okay? For now, we have to ask a question, a question posed by many biblical scholars. Why did Joseph suddenly reveal his identity specific to this chapter? What caused him to throw off suddenly his disguise? I mean, on one hand, a casual consideration of this passage might lead us to conclude that Judah had been successful in pulling on Joseph's heartstrings. We might arrive at that conclusion that Joseph disclosed himself because he could simply. Uh, He could not stand it any longer, right? But this is not sufficient. Why? Because on previous occasions, Joseph had also been emotionally touched, right? But he had always been able to restrain his emotions. And we even highlighted that because ultimately there's an interior discipline there, right? To restrain your emotions for the sake of the higher good when necessary. Brothers and sisters. It was not that now his emotions finally controlled Joseph, but that Joseph's purposes had been realized. You see, Judah's appeal did not change Joseph's heart so much as it revealed that Judah's heart had undergone a significant change since the day many years before, when he had been so instrumental in selling Joseph into slavery. In short, my friends, we could say that Joseph was now able to reveal his identity because genuine repentance had been evidenced. Up until this moment, there was insufficient evidence of repentance, right? I mean, previous chapters have indicated that Joseph's brothers recognized their suffering as a result of their own sin, but at best, they only felt a regret, right? And not a full repentance you see the regrets of judah and his brothers had not brought them to the point of confessing their sin to jacob nor nor of making any attempt to learn of joseph's fate but now given the opportunity to repeat their sin the very act more than suggests but points to a significant change of heart and action on the part of joseph's brothers as exemplified by judah huh they had once determined to do away with joseph regardless of its impact upon jacob in order to seek revenge and to avoid becoming joseph's subordinates now just the opposite was true judah was willing to become the slave of joseph even though he was declared innocent of the theft of the silver cup Why? He could not stand the thought of causing any further suffering. And that, my friends, is a real sign of genuine repentance, oh, by the way. I mean, repentance is the recognition of our sins, right, which results in the kind of sorrow that brings about a change in our intellect, a change in our emotions, a change in our volition, our will. In other words, repentance recognizes sin and is genuinely sorry for it. So much so that this sin will be shunned and a new course of action will be sought. This is what metanoia is all about. The Greek word for repentance is metanoia, a change of heart, a change of direction. Sorry for your sin, but at the same time, firmly resolved to follow a new path of holiness. We are given opportunities each and every day, mea culpa, <laughs> by the grace of God go I, to show God that you're serious about your faith. These brothers were serious about their faults, and they took all the necessary steps to change their ways, right? You know, the principle which underlies the protracted dealings of Joseph in the lives of his brothers is this. There can be no reconciliation without genuine repentance. This is what caused Joseph to delay so long in revealing his identity to his brothers. If there were to be true unity in his family, there must first be true reconciliation. And that reconciliation, my friends, would not come before his brothers experienced and evidenced a profound repentance. And oh, by the way, what does this sound like? Brothers and sisters, this is playing out like the story of the prodigal son. But in this case, <laughs> Joseph. Joseph is the, the prototypical father, ultimately embracing not his sons, but his brothers to full family restoration. Amen? Amen. All right, let us close with word